convictions that the church had themselves. Uh, and here's what the Holy Spirit inspired. He inspired the Apostle Paul to bring about correction to both their beliefs and to their actions. Because you can't unlink the two. If, 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 if we try to unlink what we truly believe and what we truly do and say they're two different things, uh, we would be probably labeled, and rightfully so, schizophrenic. Right? So the issue is, is, is correcting both beliefs and actions, attitudes and actions, beliefs and actions, and really that's the Holy Spirit's role in our lives. He brings that correction uh, to what we believe and also to how we act. I mean, Jesus said of the Holy Spirit in John 16 he says when he comes he will convict the world of sin of righteousness and judgment of to come in other words the holy spirit's role in the life of the believer is to convict when something's wrong uh to demonstrate what what is right to convict when what's right what's righteous and then also to say here's what's coming down the track like here's what's the judgment to come here's what's going to happen down the road at some point so i i have a tendency to paraphrase this passage, he, he's, he's there to show us what's wrong, what's right, and what's going to happen. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And in the lives of the believers in the Corinthian church, in the lives of believers really in all churches, that's the Holy Spirit's role. This passage, 1 Corinthians 11, is no different. It's no different at all. Let's dive in. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, really is a tie back to first, the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the chapter breaks. I, most commentators believe the chapter break is in the wrong spot, whether it is or isn't. I don't think the chapter breaks are inspired in any way, but Paul says this. He says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Uh, and it's great that that phrase can be applied both in both directions. Back in chapter 10, Back in chapter 10, where Apostle Paul has been talking in chapters 8, 9, and 10 about <clears throat> our relationships with one another, not running over other people and weak, with pe- weaker conscience because you have rights, uh, you have a greater responsibility, you have a greater responsibility inside the body of Christ. And so at the end of that, he says this simple phrase, imitate me as I imitate Christ. The point I want to make really is this. We need godly examples. We need godly examples in our lives. Apostle Paul stood right up, very first, maybe not uh, first as far as an apostle goes, but he was quick to say in all the towns and all the churches that he had started, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That was his message. Here's what Jesus showed me. Here's what I'm showing you. Imitate it. Follow Christ in this way. Follow Christ with these principles. Follow Christ with this heart. Follow Christ with, with this intentionality. And we need that types of examples in the church today. We need men like the Apostle Paul. They'll stand up and say, all right, I'll be willing to be a leader. We have an epidemic in our world today. Few pe- everybody wants the accolades, but nobody wants to do the hard work of being a leader. Absolutely it's true. And I see it... Uh, Every, uh, throughout the year, really, I see it with our young people, uh, oftentimes, that nobody wants to be the person to go first. Nobody wants to be the person to step out 
and be the example, the leader. Nobody wants to set the, the tone, set the tenor of a particular group, whether it's in sports or otherwise. We need godly examples. It's really an attitude that's uh, fading in our me-first world. It's interesting how the me-first mentality that's out there really is not me-first as far as me being an example for somebody else. It's me first from a consumer mentality where no one wants to rise up and be the examples for others. Rather than say, imitate me, rather than that mentality, what's prevalent in our culture is uh, don't look at me, don't follow my example. Don't follow my... If if that's your mentality in the church, (coughs) you should really check whether you're forgiven for the sins that you've committed or not. Because, or the enemy just keeps pounding you if you have been, or if you haven't been, the enemy just keeps pounding down on you this guilt and shame, guilt and shame. And you're thinking of, well, who can I lead? Who can I lead when my life's a train wreck? Who can I lead with the sins that I've committed, the things that I've done, the people that I've ran over, the people that I've trampled on, the attitudes and actions that I have? Who am I to lead anybody? And the reality is, is that's exactly why you're forgiven. That's exactly why Jesus is changing you. So you can be the example. So you can say to somebody, imitate me. And there's kind of four reasons I've listed out here, four reasons that uh, generally speaking, there's probably more, it's not an exhaustive list, but four reasons we don't want people to follow us. We're afraid of failure. If we lead, that means there's people behind us If we lead and fail, that means that we failed them and we lead them in the wrong direction. We're scared to death of failure. We we have a culture that's scared to death of failure. Second one is, is that we don't want to be put up on a pedestal. We're still kind of locked in that shame and guilt mental cycle that, uh, uh, we're, we're afraid that somebody would look up to us and then discover, hey, uh, actually that guy's got issues in the past or in the present. So we kind of have this idea of uh, uh, afraid of somebody might uh, think more highly of us than we ought to. Uh, the answer to that, the answer to that, the answer to having success beyond that thing that stops you if it's, if it's this uh, issue is transparency. The reason why people put people up on a pedestal is because that person that's being put up on a pedestal is never really transparent about their life. And so people don't, they get a skewed view. They get a skewed view of what's, what's really gone on there. They get a, a skewed view of what that person's life experiences is. They get it, all they see is all they see is all the good, all the plus, all the positive. They never seen the struggle in life of that other person, so they put them up there thinking, man, they're a super Christian. They're awesome. Uh, <clears throat> if you struggle with that, uh, it's a simple advice. Get to know them. Get to know one another on both sides of that. If you're somebody that's rising up in leadership, the number one thing you need to do is be transparent. You need to be real and honest about your life, about who you are, about what your struggles are, about what your temptations are, about areas that you've had some success and you speak with that with some humility, absolutely. But don't shy away from stepping up in leadership just because somebody might think of something of you and not know the whole story. Be transparent. Be real. Get to know one another. Have authentic 
relationships. Third reason, we don't want people to follow us, or we're tempted to not have people follow us, is we don't want to be responsible for others' mistakes. It's a little bit of a tie-in to the first one. We don't want to be responsible for other people's uh, mistakes. <coughs> now, this has a, a blade that kind of cuts two ways in a sense. Uh, <coughs> ultimately, other people's mistakes, other people's failures or their sins are really their own. The question is, is where does your, where does your uh, influence weigh in on that in either a positive or a negative way? And it's really a call for somebody that's going to step into some role of leadership. And when I say leadership, I'm talking from the ground roots level up, right? I'm, I'm talking, uh, you know, our young men, our young women, our young folks, they need to be learning principles of leadership all the way up through then in the marriage, in the home, uh, in the church, so on and so forth. So there's all these different levels. But the reality is, is that uh, it's a great opportunity and a great reminder that rather than shy away from, shy away, rather than shying away from leadership, we really should double check our own message. Really double check where we are and how we're influencing people. A lot of people just feel like, hey, I don't want to be responsible for somebody else goes sideways. Uh, that's a real short-sighted excuse to not step into places of leadership the last one is is that we don't know how to lead others this one's probably the most genuine of all of them is that we simply just don't know how to lead we've just never been taught uh, we've been wounded perhaps by people in leadership in our own lives in the past uh, and so we just shy away altogether from saying you know what i'm just going to live my life in a bubble i'll just keep it there i'll just be responsible for me i won't have any influence on anybody else and we really shy away. The problem there is we miss out on so much. And the number one thing that you miss out on, perhaps, is simply fulfilling the calling that God has for you. Just because you, you just don't want to go there. Because you don't know how. If you don't know how, you need to find somebody. This is called discipleship. Discipleship 101. You need to find somebody. And they need to disciple you, an older brother, an older sister in the Lord, Titus 2 model, and have them disciple you in what being a leader means. What being a leader means. Like, it's a, it's a learned process. Um, I'll go there in a minute. If there's a time in history where the church needs solid leaders uh, beyond that first century, I think it's now. And the reality is, is that we're in uh, really that same hot mess that the Corinthian church was in 2,000 years ago. Not only do we need godly leadership, godly influence, godly people in front of us teaching us how to be leaders, we also need the main thing of what the Apostle Paul goes into now is this idea of godly order. Godly order. Let's read through the next 14 verses. 15 verses, then we'll come back and take a look at it in depth. Paul says here in verse 2, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. 
Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But a woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman is from man. Nor was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so, man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. Judge for your, among yourselves, is it, not, <clears throat> is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach us that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is the glory to her, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her as a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. I'll throw a little warning before we dive into it, that over the years, uh, and I read from multiple different websites studying up for this, that uh, pieces of this passage have been taken out of context to promote a narrative that's that the God, the <clears throat> they've been taken out of context and created a narrative to promote this idea that God, the Bible, Christianity, and Christianity are bigoted, that they're chauvinistic, that they're domineering, that they're women haters. Uh, I would propose to you this morning that nothing is further from the truth when you study the text. It bothers me when uh, pieces of this are put out there. It doesn't surprise me, not at 50 years old, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, But it is bothersome, really, to see when bits and pieces are pulled out of a text to promote a narrative against the Lord. Uh, (coughs) David Pawson, if you've ever heard the radio program, Unlocking the Bible, he's passed away a couple years ago now, but David Pawson says uh, repeatedly, He keeps a a good check with this uh, quote. He says, text out of context is a pretext for an agenda. So when text is when a chunk of, when a passage is, is pulled apart and a piece of text is pulled out there to promote something that the greater context does not, does not say, then that for that person or that group or that whatever is creating a pretext for an agenda that they already have well-established. We have to be very careful not to take text out of context. Remember the context of this whole passage is a church that's in a lot of ways upside down and struggling in many ways just to even get along. So Paul's bringing them back to some sort of a semblance of order, some sort of a semblance of, of understanding, and he dives in there He dives in there. The context, uh, of course, is this young, messy church. 
of new believers, Jews, Gentiles, coming together trying to figure out how to love God and love one another. He starts out, if actually the, the first part and the last part, verse 2 and verse 16, he uses two words. He uses the word traditions and customs. Traditions and customs. So to start with, let's look at those two words uh, real briefly. They're not ancient Greek or Roman traditions. They're not that. They're not ancient and Jewish, uh, Jewish or Hebrew traditions. What Paul's talking about at the beginning or at the end is simply the traditions and the customs that Jesus taught the apostles and was passed down to the elders and then distributed out to the churches from there. These teachings transcend culture, really, is what I want to say. They transcend culture. If you think about the Gospels and what Jesus said, it transcended the days that, that he lived in. It transcended that first century by a long shot. He pointed us to the kingdom, and he talked about kingdom principles. These teachings transcend culture. They are universal and a part of God's created order. Uh, yet, and here's where the twist is, and here's where the struggle has been since these words were written down. There's a cultural expression that Paul talks about. That's where you get into all the hair length and hairstyle and, and all that goes with that. And different people over the years culturally have taken this to mean different things. But there is a cultural expression that cannot be uh, denied or, um, or forgotten here. So let's first, let's talk about we talk about traditions and customs, let's next talk about headship. In verse 3, Paul says, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And Paul begins here his kind of his repair work, if you want to look at it that way, on the Corinthians church by starting with the basic principles of leadership, of roles and responsibilities. And I want to start from the front end. <coughs> because it's really implied all the way through. This is not a statement of individual value. This is not a statement of individual value at all. You can see that in the text later on where he says, hey, uh, men and women can't be unlinked, right? Like woman came from man, but we all come from women as well. So it's not a statement of individual value. That's a lot of times where the text is taken out of context and is put forth as somehow a slam or a slander on women to subjugate them because it's taken as a statement of value. It's not a statement of individual value. It's a statement of order. It's a statement of order. And this for a church that was largely disorderly. Now we're going to read more about that in the coming weeks uh, about just how disorderly they were. But let's start with a simple uh, diagram here is that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. It's an interesting that uh, Paul doesn't start by what many would say is kind of this, you know, put down on women. He actually starts with the men. So we'll start talking about men because that's the order that he wrote it in. It's an interesting way that he goes about it. Men... Our head is Christ. He's our pattern and our example to follow. Both in being a leader and being a follower. In fact, I would propose, and I've promoted this many times, that if you want to be a good leader, be a good follower. 
right? If you want to be a good leader, young guys here, you want to be a good leader as an adult, be a good follower as a young man, right? Be a good, be a good follower. Learn to, learn to follow Christ. Learn to follow the people that Jesus puts in front of you as leadership in the church. Uh, this is not a blindfold thing. This is not a, uh, you know, just uh, walk around and, and, you know, and, and not examine anything type of following. But learn to be a good follower. Learn to be a good follower. It's how he related and followed the Father as Jesus' example for us. That's how we should follow him. Uh, Jesus led his disciples and the church and this is how that we should lead uh, men. This is how we should lead in our families. This is how we should lead in our uh, churches. This is how we should lead in society in that sense. Uh, that we're, we're patterning ourselves after Jesus himself. It could easily be said this way, men. That what we do, how we lead, how we follow, how we handle our responsibilities, how we lead our families is this, it's all for Jesus' sake. It's all for Christ's sake. That's the, that's the motivation that we have is to lead for the sake of Christ. In all that we do, that should be the main filter. That should be the main purpose for what we're doing. That should be the main uh, driving force that's behind us. Whether we're leading families or churches or whatever level that you're leading at, that should be what motivates us to do what we do. That should be what we filter our decisions through. That should be what we're uh, seeking to uh, constantly promote, both for ourselves and for other people. That we give him deference. We give deference to Jesus as our leader. And we pattern our lives after him. Uh, in that light, we should be able to say at some point, imitate me as I imitate Christ, or follow me because I'm following Jesus. That should be the, the plan and the purpose. Uh, <clears throat> I would encourage you fathers, like this is something that needs to be communicated to your kids, right? This should be part of our discussion at some level, at some spot with our kids, simply to say, my role as a husband and a father is to be an example for you, so as I follow Jesus... I want you to follow me. I want you to follow me. The parallel passage to 1 Corinthians 11 is Ephesians chapter 5. And in Ephesians 5, we see the order in the home. And 1 Corinthians 11 is really a, a passage on order in the church. And that's why I'm kind of combining the two. If you're wondering why I'm kind of uh, crossing back and forth in the various examples that I give, um, I think that it's connected. And in fact, the Apostle Paul says, hey, how you're going to lead at home is how you would lead at church. Right? So if you're not leading well at home and you step into a place of leadership in the church, guess what? It's not going to fly. It's not going to go well. There's going to be issues. Right? First, you've got to lock it down at home. First, you've got to nail it at home. First, you have to understand and, and be in that role. I'm not talking like sinless perfection. Because everybody is tempted. Everybody has uh, points and, and times where, where they uh, fail. What I'm saying is, is there, a, is there a pattern there 
Is there a life pattern there where you're leading at home? Because how you're going to lead at home is how you're going to lead in the church. There's some actions here when it comes to headship, when it comes to handling authority. The action of headship is this. It's <clears throat> for men, for us, is to love and to sacrifice. That's the action. And that action kind of plays out in these ways. It means protection. It means provision. It means help and service. A variety of different ones that aren't listed here. But ultimately, they boil down to, uh, are you loving and are you sacrificial in your leadership? If headship is anything, headship is taking the initiative to lead for the good of others. It's taking initiative to lead for the good of others. And uh, I will tell you from personal experience, taking initiative can be super scary. Taking initiative can be really intimidating. I remember years ago, uh, we were fellowshipping up at Summit Valley at the time, and and uh, I was really, really content just, I just ran the sound. Like, I was real content being in the back of the room. Uh, and as long as I did my job well, nobody really knew that I was there or really doing anything. Um, till something goes wrong, till there's that squeal, that, that screech, the, the screens go black <laughs> or whatever. But largely speaking, I was really content to just be backing out of the way. And uh, one of the worship leaders at the time encouraged me to um, come out of my little, you know, cave in the back. This is nothing to say about you, but maybe someday. Should be for everybody. But I was encouraged to kind of come out, getting, I was drawn out, really. I was drawn out by other people in leadership. Uh, I haven't always been real comfortable at the pulpit we had a pastor at the time that 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 graciously said i think you need to step up i think he's he was drawing me out he was drawing me out as a younger man in the faith to say hey i think you need to step out here do you think you need to start preparing a, just prepare a sermon then let's talk about it prepare a sermon maybe there will be an opportunity prepare a sermon you know, and, and you never know when, when and where. Like, if nothing else, the study of that will help you and, and will be a benefit for you in your walk with the Lord. And, uh, and I kind of took him up on that challenge, you know, and I, I thought, surely there'll never be a time we'll actually have to say these words. I just thought, you know, it was just kind of, like, I figured it was more of an assignment, you know, and then a conversation, and it wasn't but a couple years later uh, where... I had an opportunity, and I have to tell you, like, I was scared to death. Number one fear of uh, phobia that's out there is the fear of public speaking. And I would guarantee that uh, <coughs> there's not many of you that would just run to the stage and want to say something, you know, for more than just like a sentence or two. Uh, it's a real thing. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Not everybody has to do this. But everybody, men, I'm talking about the men's side of things, men, all of us as men need to learn how to take the initiative on something. How to step over whatever is freezing you, step through that barrier, 
and be an initiative taker. We have a whole society that wants us to lean back a little on our heels, lean back into our cheers, chairs, and just kind of judge what's going on around as if that is like all of our responsibility is, is to be kind of that armchair quarterback and, you know, and gee whiz, why don't, you know, why don't the politicians do it this way or, you know, why don't they do, why don't they do this, why don't they do it, why don't the president, why don't, you know, so, why don't, you know, and we take no initiative. In fact, we struggle to get our ballots to the mailbox. Like, that's the baseline initiative, <laughs> you know. That's the bottom of the rung when it comes to or politics. It's simply just cast a vote. We have to be men of action. We have to be men of initiative in that way. And leadership, leadership takes initiative. And here's the key. Here's the key. Leadership takes initiative for the good of others. Leadership takes initiative on behalf of other people. It spells action. It does not, does not mean passivity. It does not mean passivity. And we live in a culture where passivity, especially for us guys, is epidemic. I would venture to say it's more epidemic than pornography, more epidemic than alcoholism, more epidemic than drug abuse, more epidemic than anything, I think, across the, the board, we have been shown in our culture that men's role is to be passive in almost all things. That's not the godly order that I see in the Bible. And I'm not going to back down from that at all. We need to be men of initiative. We need to be men in initiative for the good of others. In other words, it's not about you, it's about other people. Not only do we need to be that, we need to advocate for God's authority. Here's where a lot of things go sideways. Uh, <coughs> I only have them highlighted in my notes as a reference. You can go there and take a look for yourself. But both Moses and Solomon, Moses in Exodus chapter 32 and Solomon in Second Chronicles chapter 1, uh, called out to the Lord for wisdom to lead God's people. They called out for wisdom to lead God's people. They wanted to lead God's people God's way. And so they didn't just assume, in fact, if you know the story in Exodus, there was a time that Moses assumed that leadership and he made all the wrong decisions and had to run off and hide for a while because he had committed murder before he could actually get back and actually do what God wanted him to do. But man, we cannot assume authority. We have to advocate for God's authority. We have to advocate for God's authority. There's some real dangers in the assumption of authority that often lead to a misuse or abuse of that authority. People that assume authority fail oftentimes to have followers at home or in the church. Uh, people that assume that they have authority are often frustrated with people. Uh, they're not taking initiative on the behalf of other people. They're frustrated with the very people that they think that they're leading, and they can't get out of that crazy cycle of frustration. 
uh, and the cousin to that is the fact that people that assume authority often blame others for their issues. It's not taking the initiative to say, uh, these, you know, these decisions are on me. It's really blaming other people. Of course, the enemy's plan is to kill, steal, and destroy. John chapter 10, and that includes undermining God's creative, created order of authority. Rather than promote our own authority or assume authority, uh, we need to be advocating for godly authority at every level, both in the home and also in the church. So, what about all this hair covering stuff? What about all this headship? The, is, it, is it the coffee filter look? Is it long hair? Is somebody somebody got to take measures? Are we going to run around and measure everybody's hair? Who's longest? Who's not? And, you know, Gary's got long hair. He's out. I'll tell you, over the years, many, many people have gotten hung up in this issue. Many people have gotten hung up and it's all about rules and too long and too short. Uh, you're out of order. You're not out of order. You're welcome. You're welcome to come. You're welcome not to come. Uh, <coughs> is that what this passage is about? Does it boil down to some, you know, measuring tape for how long your hair is? The head coverings that Paul's talking about here in chapter 11 is a cultural expression about what they believed internally. It was a cultural expression that was a point of distinction between men and women. It was a cultural expression that, that, that was saying something, that was saying something, so if a lady had her head shaved, she was probably, you know, struggling in some area of, of, of sin, maybe it was a prostitute, had some addiction in that sense, or had some bondage in that sense, or whatever. Um, or, it was uh, issues of rebellion in the heart. But regardless, this is kind of the aspect of the cultural expression that we have to weed out and say, okay, w what is Paul saying? And I think what he's saying is, is that we're to avoid this gender juggle. Uh, we live in a time where nearly every created gender distinctive is being washed away in our culture. Like you can't tell or you're not supposed to say or you're not supposed to use, you know, specific pronouns or whatever. And, <coughs> and people in our society are really, really becoming progressively more confused on what their gender is even about. That washing away is celebrated widely. And it says a lot about what people think, uh, not of gender. This is not about that part, or it's not about hairstyles or lengths. Um, it says a lot, it's telling on what people think of God's created leadership model. That's what it's about. It's not about whether, you know, if you don't have, you know, tw ladies, if you don't have 12 inches of, you know, long hair, if it's not past your shoulders, or men, if yours is, it's none of that. It was a cultural expression about gender distinction. We live in a similar time where the lines are pretty fuzzy. Verses 4 and 5, let's look at those real quick. Verses 4 and 5, every man <coughs> praying or prophesying 
having his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. <clears throat> For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. The idea is, is the connection between you and the created authority over you. That's what Paul's driving at. What's your, so for men, what's your relationship with, like with Jesus? Like, are you willing to do what it takes? This is just one cultural expression for them. But are you willing to do what it takes to make sure that whatever you're doing, you're doing it in a way that honors Jesus? We don't want to dishonor Jesus. He's our head. He's our leader. We want to follow him. We want to follow him in the way that he followed the Father. He never did anything that dishonored the Father. In fact, he only did what the Father said when the Father said to do it. So he was highly connected with his authority. He was highly connected with his head. He was in tune with the leadership that was over him while he was here in the flesh. Never got out of step. Never got in a squabble. Not that he didn't at times even question or wonder, is this really what I should do? Do I really have to drink this cup? Do I really have to go through with this? Like, he, he wasn't a denier in that sense. He was true and authentic about it. And he asked all the right questions. But he never, never crossed the line to dishonor the Father. And simply, that's what Paul is saying here in these, first, these two verses is what we're doing and how we're doing it is the reflection in our heart something that is dishonoring both for men and for ladies. Is how we're going about it, is, the, is, is, it, is it somehow bring, bringing shame, dishonor, disrepute, any of those types of things? Is it tearing down or is it promoting what the Lord's created order is? I think we need to turn to these, return to these truths in the Bible. The created purpose and order and distinctions. If you look at verse 7 through 10, it's a call to return to that order and purpose. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since here's the reasons why we should do this. He is the image and the glory of God. Men, you bear the mark. There's something specific about men Paul's the one that parsed out the genders here and the reasons why but there's something about the image and the glory of God now is that to say that ladies don't share that same imagio deo absolutely they do but in the cultural expression inside of that part of the conversation he's saying hey uh, you're the image and the glory of God and and women you're the glory you're the glory of man you're the glory of man uh, simply put, you want Mark's two, you know, two dollar take on that. You're the best of what we got. You're the best of what we got. Now, is that demeaning to women to think that way? No, but this taken out of context, some people would lead you that way. Some people would promote that agenda. Woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman come from man. We know the Genesis account. Nor is man created. For the woman, but woman was created for the man. Again, the Genesis reference back to Adam and Eve and what God's purpose was there. Adam found himself 
without an, e- without an equal, without one of his kind. He just named all of the animals. He just laid out the whole agenda of God's created order, the birds, the fish, the animals that roamed there in Genesis. You can go back there and read for it yourself. All of that part of the created order was done, and Adam looked around and he said, there's nobody like me. There's nobody like me. So God created a woman from Adam's rib. And uh, after he woke up, he said, whoa, 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 man. Whoa, whoa, man. She's the best of what we got. She's the best of my type. The glory of man. But for all of this, for this reason, there's the last reason. The woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And here's the extra reason that Paul throws in at the end of verse 10. Because of the angels. Because of the angels. That uh, phrase right there stumped me most of this week. It kind of made me uh, pause and dig in a little deeper, study the word a little more, get online, look around. Hard to always find trusted sources. <coughs> but here's my what I was thinking about even in the process of that. Is that <coughs> God's created order is not just for us to, uh, it's not solely just for us to partake in. It is, it is for sure for ladies, for men, both, that we should embrace what God has, uh, has, has created for us by way of order, and especially in the church, in our homes, in Ephesians 5, and in the church, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We should embrace that. We should embrace what he's done. But there's another piece. We have spectators. You guys get that? We don't often think this way. We don't often think this way. We don't think that there's a, uh, often sit and ponder the fact that there's angelic realm watching what the church is doing. Observing, looking down as it were, saying, wow. They're watching our behavior. They're watching our response to God's draw in our lives. They're, they're watching us as we, as we do this life, as we struggle with sin, as we find victory over sin in Christ. They're watching as we, how we relate with one another. They're watching to see uh, what ministries we partake with. They're, they're watching the whole thing. And they're watching. They're watching primarily bits and pieces out of the Genesis. Out of the beginning. Like are we, are, are they going to tie back to what God's created purpose is? It's never changed. It's never changed. God's created purpose in authority and in headship. The question that I would have for our, the church in general, perhaps even in a broader form, is ladies, do we see men the way that God has defined them? And I think that we have to be honest with ourselves, men and women, to take a look at these questions. 
do we see men the way that God has defined them? Their roles, their responsibilities, all of that goes with what being a man is, the way that God created them, do we, do we see that? Are we embracing that? Men, do you see the ladies the way that God has created them? Do we see men, do we see our ladies amongst us, whether it's our wives, even other ladies, do we see the ladies around us in this fellowship and beyond, do we see them the way that God created them with purpose, with intent, with roles, with distinction? Do we see one another that way? And I will tell you, and I think most of us would agree, it is a minute by minute sometimes, it's a daily grind to push back away the societal influence. It's, it's this glacier move that just keeps trudging forward that, that the worldview on gender uh, is all about and the changes and, and all that go with that. And my challenge for all of us is to, is to push back against that and embrace and embrace, if you haven't, definitely begin it, if you have embraced what the Word says, then continue to, to move forward and continue to grow, continue to uh, live out these gender distinctions. See, the issue again is not hair length. The real issue is, is there, are we reflecting the distinctions that God created for men and women? Are we reflecting those in a good way that gives him glory, that gives him honor, that doesn't defame the name of Christ? The reality is, I, I don't, I guess I would say it this way. <clears throat> I do and I don't care about so much what society says. I care because I think it's leading a lot of people astray. Um, I don't care so much about what they think about what I think because I'm not as answerable, you're not as answerable to them as you are to the Lord in the end. So that's where the laser focus in my mind comes into play here. Like in the end, we'll stand before the Lord for who we are. We'll stand before the Lord. And for that, these basic principles that the Apostle Paul brings into the Corinthians church that was in this huge upheaval and starting to struggle in their culture with gender distinctives he brings them back to the beginning he doesn't just say well let's just pick up from here and move forward his instructions are well <clears throat> if something needs fixed let's go back to the manufacturer right let's go back to the guy that created all of this and what did he say and how did he make a difference? How did he uh, affect the world by what he created? Do we all understand, ladies and men, that this angelic realm is kind of looking down on us to see if we're living out the created purposes that God has stamped us with? And if we want to deal with our own society's hot mess of gender issues, it really starts with each one of us forsaking the world's mentality and really returning to God's eternal plan. 
That's the solution. That's the recipe in a sentence. It's to return to God's uh, original plan uh, that's throughout the pages of the Bible. It starts with men leading and serving and being sacrificial. It, it continues with ladies, you know, doing the things, being the Titus II lady. That's not that ladies don't have a role to play, even in influential roles. Absolutely, they do. Look at Titus chapter 2. You'll see that blueprint for both men and women. But we have to come back to say, no, <coughs> God's actually created some distinct roles and responsibilities in what he's done. Uh, and the first step out of a chaotic church is to re-embrace that. Is to re-embrace that. That's, chap that's the first 16 verses of chapter 11. We're going to stop right there. The worship team, if you'll come on up. We will uh, go to the Lord and close with, close with our last worship song. We'll pick it up here, verse 17. This next week.